This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Linda Cohen here with you. Dengue fever. Well, it's one of the fastest spreading tropical diseases, and it's now in the continental U.S., and it does pose a real threat to our country. We'll hear with more on this disease and some of her research findings that may help us in the battle with it is Dr. Anna Stewart-Ibarra from the Center for Global Health and Translational Science at Upstate Medical University. Welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Linda. So let's begin by helping us understand what we mean by dengue fever. What is dengue? So dengue fever is a disease, um, a febrile disease causes fever, bone, joint aches, uh, rash. And it's a disease that's caused by a virus that's transmitted by a certain species of mosquitoes called the Aedes aegypti mosquito principally. There's another species also, Aedes albopictus. And so those mosquitoes transmit the disease from one person to another, Typically within the tropics and subtropics, and so so it's never it's it's not human to human transmission. Correct, right? So it's literally much like malaria, malaria, or, or sim- similar to yeah, malaria or other kinds of like tick-borne or West Nile. You know, you have to have that intermediate mosquito to be able to get the disease. And basically, how does it manifest itself? You said fever, chills. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it once called bone break disease mm. or something of that nature? What does that mean? Yeah, so dengue is also called break bone fever break in bone. some parts. Yeah. yeah, so it causes severe fever and joint aches. It depends on the person, too, because there's a spectrum of disease, right? So you could have people who have no symptoms, who have very mild symptoms, through more severe, even hemorrhaging, shock, and and death. Um, And so that's one of the things we want to understand sort of more from the immunology side is what are the triggers. So what is the morbidity and mortality? In other words, what happens to people generally? Because I know Mm -hmm. there is no cure Mm -hmm. per se right now. So what happens when you get dengue. Right, so that's something important to mention. There's Today, there doesn't exist any kind of specific cure or vaccine for the disease, and so we have to have really good clinical uh, management of patients who become ill with dengue. So it's supportive um, therapies, mostly like Hydration, fluids. exactly, fluids, um, taking you know just uh, medicine to reduce the... The fever, fever, yeah, but and close monitoring, looking to make sure there's no hemorrhaging or bleeding if you have people going into more severe disease, which is, so your question was going to what is the spectrum and how often do you see severe disease or um, most people actually probably never show symptoms. So most people could be really? infected and be a, totally, what we call asymptomatic, right? A certain smaller proportion of people may have mild febrile, mild fever, you know, maybe a day or two home from work, that sort of thing, kind of like a flu or a bad cold. And then a much smaller proportion would actually progress to a more severe disease that would require hospitalization. And generally, um, the, the disease can be managed if you have you know, clinicians who are skilled, they can prevent it from getting any worse. In some cases, um, often because in areas where you have lack of resources, uh, you can progress to more severe disease like shock or death, but that's a very small proportion of and the cases. And that's perhaps if you get dehydrated and what have you. So if there is inadequate hydration and people aren't controlling yeah. the fever, or too much hydration. So if you have improper, you know, clinical management, right? So where is it most prevalent? You said in the tropics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So dengue countries, is yeah. uh, what we consider to be endemic, where you have year-round transmission or you know, regular transmission in the tropics and all the way through the subtropics. And it's we found it moving into areas where it hasn't been reported in a long time. You know, in southern U.S. In like the Texas. What, what states? Um, so since I think 2009, we've had dengue in Florida. Um, we have some transmission always in the border region. So in the Texas Arizona border region. 
We ha- I know there have, there have been sporadic dengue outbreaks also in Hawaii. In Florida as well? Uh, definitely in Florida and, you know, in Puerto Rico and many U.S. territories we have dengue. And do they know how it got there? Was it again? Mm. And, and that's the question. So in other words, if someone mm-hmm. experiences dengue and they come to this country, mm-hmm. they it can't be a human-to-human transmission. Mm-hmm. So how then is it spread? So you have to have the mosquito vector. So in places like in Florida, we have the Aedes aegypti mosquito vector. It lives there naturally. It's a it's natural part, habitat. Exactly. And we find Aedes aegypti even in, you know, up, going up the East Coast into, you know, New Jersey, I think. And so there is potential for transmission, and there's even documented dengue transmission in Philadelphia from the 1700s. So it wants, you know... Back in the day, we used to have it. The, the same as we used to have malaria in this area. In central New York, we used to have malaria. It's hard to believe, isn't it? R- right. But a lot of the reason we don't is because you have changing social conditions. People have air conditioning. You have screens on doors and windows. You know, we have a very effective public health system here. But we also have other uh, tick-borne and other mosquito-borne diseases even in right. this area now. Mm-hmm. And there's some concern about West Nile and what else. And Tripoli. And, and Tripoli. And tick-borne so. diseases like Lyme disease. Yeah. Exactly. So it does continue. Mm-hmm. So the bottom line is if somebody is, is infected with dengue and they're resolving and an Egypti mosquito bites mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. Do they then pick up sufficient amount of the vector or the, the, the virus, the virus yeah. to then infect another person? Potentially. So it depends when the mosquito bites you, right? So during the first few days of illness, that's when the virus is replicating and circulating in your bloodstream. That's when you would be considered to be infectious. Um, and if a mosquito, you know, Aedes aegypti, Aedes albopictus mosquito bites you during that window, then they could pick up enough of the virus to pass it to someone else, probably someone else in your family because these mosquitoes live in and around the home, right? But if you're later in the process, so say you went on vacation to Puerto Rico and then you had fever and then you came back to the U.S., you're at the tail end of the illness, you're probably not so infectious, you know, so you have lower chance of being able to pass the disease to but someone else. But the fact is it, does, it is existing and is it continuing to exist in, in uh, coastal, I mean, in the environment of, of the continental United States. Yes. yes. So somehow it's being... It's persisting it's in persisting. Florida, especially, Yeah. 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 If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm here with Dr. Anna Stewart-Ibarra, and we're talking about, um, she's a global health researcher, and we're talking about dengue fever, but we're also talking about what is prompting it mm. to kind of spread to some of these areas. And you've been engaged in a fair amount of research now for several years, mm-hmm. trying to look at what the factors are that are contributing to the spread or the prevalence of this this disease, dengue, mm-hmm. And some other diseases as well. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your research. Yeah, so as we mentioned, dengue is now a problem in the U.S., but predominantly we see sort of worldwide we see most dengue in more tropical areas like in Latin America and Asia. And so I've been working in Ecuador, um, which is right located on the equator, so in South America between Peru and Colombia on the Pacific coast. It's a small country, but it's a country where we see lots of dengue transmission. And so we've been working in partnership with the local Ministry of Health and other universities to understand what are the triggers, uh, what are the climate factors, and also what are the local social risk factors that influence the disease and how can we develop more effective interventions so that we can improve the health of the population Especially until or if a vaccine is developed, because at this point you're really facing Mm -hmm. what are the larger factors that may either make it more um, uh, fertile ground Mm -hmm. for this disease to spread or the contrary, contrary to things that could actually quell, quell the spread. 
Yeah, so I mean... So what are the household factors that you came up with? Or what, in other words, what are people mm -hmm. doing in their own lives that either promote or dissuade the disease from spreading? So one of the important risk factors is um, household water storage. So people, and we do this here in central New York too, rain barrels, right? Um, and so how people store water in and around the home. Um, so weather, standing water. Exactly. Pools standing of standing water. water are a problem. Mm -hmm. Because specifically this mosquito breeds in and around the household in urban areas. And so we provide, you know, the perfect habitat for the mosquitoes to reproduce. And then we are the food, right? So they mm -hmm. have their food and their habitat all in one. They're incredibly well adapted to urban environments. Um, but how is the change in environment? So, so what you're saying, people obviously what would follow from that is to attempt to utilize, you know, different methods of storing things, closed covers or mm -hmm. what have you. But also maybe use of mosquito nets. I would think all of these kinds of things screens could help. on windows screens, and doors, screens on air windows. conditioning if you can afford it. But yeah. in the larger context mm -hmm. of the climate environment, mm -hmm. what factors have you found are either prompting or promoting the, mm -hmm. the spread of these? or the, even the emergence of new problems. Yeah. So one of the things we find is that warmer air temperatures and more rainfall has increased the risk of the disease in these areas. Um, and that's specific, that's, that's linked to these extreme climate events, like the El Nino events, which is something that we're seeing this coming year. There's, a, there's forecasts coming out from NOAA, from the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Service of the U.S., um, projecting high probability of an El Nino event this year. And El Nino events are these global, what we call coupled ocean climate phenomenon. So we see this warming of the oceans, and that triggers climate events, extreme climate events across the world, which could be flooding or droughts. So specifically where we work in Ecuador, when we see El Nino events, um, we see an increase in the temperature. So everything becomes warmer and wetter. It starts raining more. And historically, we have had major disease outbreaks during El Nino events. So, how frequently yeah. does El Nino do El, El Nino events, or does El Nino occur? Mm -hmm. um, so, El Nino events recur every few years, maybe five to seven years. But what's more important for us is how often do very strong El Nino events occur, because there can be weaker or stronger events, right? So, the last time we had a very strong El Nino event was 1998, and prior to that was in the early 1980s. Um, and when we have very strong El Nino events, that's when we need to pay more attention because that can be linked to flooding and which, and also, like I said, warmer temperatures. So we have risk of mosquito-borne diseases like dengue and malaria, but also we have increased risk of waterborne diseases um, like leptospirosis or cholera, which are transmitted during often during flooding events. So what can be done? I mean, and, and I guess the other question I have is, mm -hmm. if, if El Nino is really, it, El Nino is not a function of climate change at this point, is it? Or is it? Well, El Nino is this, like I said, global sort of ocean climate yeah. event. Uh, but with climate change, there are forecasts that say that we will have more frequent and stronger El Nino events. And so we're, um, that's likely to come sort of in the next, in the next year, say, 20 to 50 years here. Um, it's very complicated, you know, still, this this understanding of how the climate systems work, but that's been some of the most recent work in this area of climate modeling shows that we expect more frequent and stronger uh, 
um, El Nino, because there's extreme climate events. And there's a close correlation then between, as you said, the warming mm -hmm. and the increased moisture mm -hmm. and increases in the kinds of diseases that you've described, the waterborne mm -hmm. or the, the insect-borne diseases. Yes, that's correct. So the question, I guess, would be, well, first of all, where is your research headed? What are you proposing as a result of the fi your findings? Mm -hmm. And is there anything that can be done? I mean, short of, obviously, a global mm -hmm. effort to change the, the fact that we're, that we're having mm -hmm. global warming. Yeah, so uh, we need a multi-pronged approach, right? And part of our work has been pulling together this group of diverse actors, you know, people from universities, people from the climate sector, from the meteorological sector, from that public health sector to start talking and working together to develop these solutions. Um, you know, we're working also closely now with the Secretary of Risk because they manage things like disasters and flooding. And so we're creating a space for a dialogue that didn't exist before to come up with new solutions. Um, specifically from our research, I think one of, the, one of the focuses has been how to develop early warning systems to be able to create predictions of when these epidemics will occur and to be able to provide that information to decision makers so that they can decide how you know, they want to allocate resources, if they need to hire more people or purchase more you know, insecticide or do more public health campaigns in a given year. Uh, we're also working closely with Syracuse University and with partners in Ecuador and the Department of Defense to develop new mosquito control techniques. And so developing new technologies, new ways to... Give me an example of what that one might be. So we're um, developing a device that you would place in the household, a low-cost device that would attract the mosquito and kill the mosquito. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is something that we're testing currently in, in Ecuador, but something that could potentially be used anywhere in the world. Worldwide right? with all, any of the issues exactly. with mosquitoes, right? And then, as you mentioned before, of course, the vaccine is a, is a really important uh, research effort that's ongoing. And our group at Upstate with the Center for Global Health is very actively involved in research to develop a dengue vaccine. Although... A dengue, a dengue vaccine is likely going to be on the market very soon. There are many different um, candidates for dengue vaccines, many different companies working worldwide. But I think an important message is that um, we won't, I don't think we will ever be relying on just the vaccine. We need an integrated approach. So we need to be able to look at new ways to control mosquitoes. Uh, we need to have the vaccine and we need to have better information about when and where and how we have likely outbreaks. So we need this sort of holistic approach. So you have a new project little bit of time we have left. Tell mm -hmm. us about that. Yeah, so this is an exciting new project that was funded by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of Health. It's a joint program called the Ecology and Evolution of Emerging Infectious Diseases, and it's a two and a half million dollar project, five years. Um, the main project the, is coming through Stanford, and we are one of the partners on the grant, and so that will involve uh, three years of, of field studies going on in Ecuador to understand how climate is affecting dengue at different climate, uh, sort of in different elevations, looking at elevational gradients. So we're working at higher elevations where we don't typically see the disease. We're working in an area where we have disease year-round and a very dry, almost desert-like condition. And we're working with a team of modelers, mathematical modelers and entomologists from University of Florida, from Penn State, from and from Stanford and others, to be able to develop better predictions and better mathematical models and uh, to, to explain and understand how and when these disease outbreaks happen. So again, the whole me the whole methodology here that you're going to employ is the attempt is to be predictive, because as yes. you said, you know we're not changing global warming overnight. So the right. idea is that if if you can be predictive and reliably predictive, mm -hmm. and perhaps you can take certain certain measures right. to prevent the spread. Exactly. All these variety of measures, and hopefully with the work that's being done with regard to a vaccine, mm -hmm. that will be one more arm. In your in your armamentarium mm -hmm. to try to fight the disease and other 
global diseases that are that are um, emerging as a result of all this. Yeah, I think all of these strategies, we could consider different sorts of climate change adaptation strategies. You know, how can we better deal with the changing climate? It's already happening. You know, climate affects health today. This is not, this is, this is known. This is not up for debate, you know. How it will affect cl- health in 100 years, that, there's a lot of room to discuss there. But climate affects health now. You know, millions of people are affected every year by heat waves and flooding and Um, It's something we need to deal with and address today. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing all this great information with us. My guest has been Dr. Anna Stewart Ibarra. She's from the Center um, for Global Health and Translational Science at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.